0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Chaser. Leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. And leave a review on Good Pods. And check us out on all three. Um, I appreciate y'all who are already listening to us. Let your friends know, because I am literally... dope as shit like I, I i was gonna say something else and then it got overrode like i can't even say i'm anything less than dope as shit that's wild because years ago when depression was whooping my ass and it still does it still is i was begging for somebody to say something nice about me and then i realized why don't i just say nice shit about myself and so that's why my default is that I'm a bad motherfucker and I'm dope as shit because there's voices inside my head that tell me every day that I'm not. And there's people out there in the world who won't tell me anything. So I need to tell myself, I am excellent. This show is perfect. And if y'all are walking through darkness at any point in your life, just let me know that you, just let you know. I wanna let you know that I am here for you. To let you know that I'm dope as fuck. And I feel like you are too. And I will talk with you. Email me. I will walk with you. I'm a pretty bomb ass listener too. Don't walk alone. Winter's coming. And I'm here for you. But right now I'm here for me. And y'all are here for me. So let's do this shit. Chapter 6. Sunday morning. David attended worship service at New Life Baptist Church on Main Street. They say Sunday morning, but they really mean Sunday. Black churches, I don't know if they've improved over the years. I don't. But I know that we would go to Sunday school at like 9 a.m. And Sunday school would go until like 11. And then you would get out of Sunday school at 11. And then you would sit down the main service with all the adults and... And main service would go from 11 until about three. Yeah, until about three. And it was even worse if some old woman stood up in the back and said, take your time, pastor. Everybody would want to throw rocks at her. Like We should be able to stone people who tell the pastor to take their time when the pastor already talks like this. If the people in the church will give me an amen. Take your time, pastor. Shut the fuck up, sister. (laughs) And then they'd have that church appreciation dinner where you got the, 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 the red punch and the chicken wing and the green beans And the the green beans with the potatoes in it, I'm sorry. The green beans, what what the fuck was that? The green beans with the, who the fuck wants to eat that? The green beans with the potatoes, I'll take the bacon though. The green beans with the bacon and the potatoes, That all just tastes like potato. None of it tastes like anything. And the lemon cake. Always a lemon cake. Or else a socket to them cake. Somebody brought a better than sex cake into my church once and they got shunned like a motherfucker. And then after you eat dinner, which took like an hour, so from three to four, then it'll be time for a revival, which will go from four until like nine. So when they say Sunday morning, he attended a worship service. What they really mean is he was there from Sunday morning until Sunday evening. And by the time he got out, Naya had moved to New Orleans. Okay, I'll keep going. Naya had mentioned that his father had attended the church regularly and counted the pastor as a friend. David hoped to speak to Reverend Brown after the service to learn more about his dad. I mean, in every... black, You gotta know, I don't like church very much. I mean, I go, and I'm a Christian and all that shit, but I don't trust Christians. I don't. I don't trust religious people. I don't. And um, I don't trust pastors with the last name of... Brown, Williams, Jenkins, Carter, Jones. We ain't safe. Um, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. about sums it up. Or pastors that call, no. Wait, no, I, I knew a pastor who called himself Bishop, and he was the greatest man I knew. So he gets a pass. The rest of them niggas, though, mm, 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 mm. I know where my offering's going, right into my pocket, because if it doesn't, it's going right into yours. When you get to heaven, God's going to set you aside. You're going to be like, I was on the guest list. And God's going to be like, come stand next to me, little homie. Come here. Come here. Come here. Tell me about the time that you uh, were hollering at women during marriage counseling. Tell me about that. Okay. (sighs) The church was a large, simple brick building with stained glass windows and a gleaming white cross atop the roof. Inside, dozens of polished oak pews filled the sanctuary and they never have cushions on the pews. Like you just sitting on wood for like five hours, nigga. Like why in the fuck would you do this to me? The pews were lined with plush royal blue cushions. Oh, I, I must have went to the wrong black churches. Okay, my bad. That matched the carpeting. White lamps that resembled small globes hung from the ceiling. Showering the chapel in golden light. And if you're wondering why I never talk about white churches, it's because I was never allowed in. That's all. I never knew where they were located. They didn't speak black language. They didn't, they didn't... They didn't do worship the way we did worship. It was just weird. It was weird. It was like they knew that I what I wanted. And they just would not give it to me. Guitar playing worship leader. Look, <laughs> I asked to go to a Catholic church once. I was dating someone who was a Catholic. And she told me no. She was like, I was not allowed to go. And I don't know if it was because I was black, because she was, if I was Baptist, because she wasn't, or it was because we broke up the next week. It was like, I was a kid, you know, whatever. That's the way love goes. That's the way love goes. Sorry. Okay. David arrived early for the eight o'clock service. That means he was there until, again, three. Let's do the math. No, I take that back. The one place where you wanted to be for a black service, the one place you wanted to be at a black church was the early morning service. If you could make it, which we couldn't, the only time we could make it to the 6 a.m. service was when time changed (laughs) and we didn't set the clocks right. And so the clock would go off at 7, what we thought was 7, and we start getting ready for 8 o'clock Sunday school, but it was actually like 6 o'clock. And, well, it would go off at 6.30. So, we thought that it was, you know, 6.30, we start getting ready to do all our stuff, and it was actually like 5.45, 5.30, so my mom would be like, fuck it, let's just go to the early morning service, we all be like, yay, because they can't fuck around in the early morning service, because they have all these other services behind them, that other service though, that next service after that, all bets are off, You go to that early morning service though, you spend two hours in there listening and maybe falling asleep if your mom's cool with it that day, which you never was. And then you could talk her into taking you to IHOP and you can get them pancakes with the butter pecan syrup and holy shit, I think I just nutted. At a quarter to eight, the church was nearly full. He sat near the back. A chorus of six men and women arrived at the altar and launched into a familiar song of praise. He tapped his foot in rhythm with the beat. Although new life was smaller than the church he attended in Atlanta, a comforting atmosphere filled the place. When he was a child, David's mother had dragged him and his sister to church every Sunday forcing him to attend Sunday school and participate in activities such as the youth choir. Same, same right here. And then on Wednesdays, you would go to Bible study, and choir rehearsal was on Tuesdays, and on Thursdays, we had manhood development program, and on Fridays, we slept. David had learned a great deal and mostly enjoyed going. But he grew to resent his mother's pushing him to attend, yanking him out of bed when he wanted to sleep in, demanding that he go to choir practice when he'd rather hang out with his friends. He vowed that as soon as he moved out of her house, he would go to church if he felt like it. And if he didn't feel like it, he wouldn't go. When he moved out to attend college, he went through a period of eight years during which he slipped into church no more than four times a year. But two years ago, one of his high school friends died in a car accident. David suddenly decided to begin attending church again. There was nothing like a shattering realization of your own mortality to awaken a yearning for divine guidance. Worship service began promptly at eight. Reverend Brown made his way to the altar. He was a bear of a man, middle-aged, with glasses and a somber demeanor. He was dressed in a conservative blue suit. And the only piece of jewelry he wore was a wedding ring. Here's the other problem I have with black churches. Y'all never stand up for black people. Donald Trump got elected and y'all motherfuckers were like, as long as the church does what it's supposed to, it doesn't matter who gets elected. That's fine, but motherfucking cops are beating my ass out there no matter what church I go to. When I told a cop I went to St. Paul, you know what they said? Nothing. They were too busy trying to beat my ass. You're telling me that you don't care who gets elected, but then you're telling me to vote Republican because black folks won't stand behind you when it comes to fucking raising money for the church and shit. Because Democrats won't do what you need them to do. You tell me that I shouldn't worry about what's going on in the world because Jesus is bigger than the world, and then I'm getting beat up by the world, and I try and come tell you, and you're like, did you pray about it? Bitch, please. Okay, I promise I'm going to stop. Maybe. A choir of about 25 people led the congregation through several stirring songs. People clapped, sang, shouted, and danced. David smiled. Baptist churches were the same across the South. Oh, and having the choir director who can lead the choir but can't bring their boyfriend into the church. And I always had to wear suits and shit. That I would never wear anywhere else or else we got made fun of. So my mom, who was a single mother and didn't have money to be buying me suits, had to buy me suits and shit. So then she was able to go into the church because we couldn't just wear corduroys and and striped shirts. And then the pastor would try and hug up on my mom and shit when we were leaving service. But didn't know none of our names. After the choir finished singing, a slim woman in a yellow dress read the announcements and then asked the visitors to stand to be welcomed. David hesitated, then rose. "'What's your name, young man?' the woman said. "'David Hunter.' A murmur rolled through the crowd. "'That's Richard Hunter's boy,' many people whispered. "'Looks just like his daddy.' Reverend Brown raised his head from his notes and made eye contact with David. David nodded at him, and the Reverend nodded in return. Now that he had made his presence known... He was certain that the pastor would make it a point to speak with him after the service. He sat, palms sweating in anticipation. The reverend delivered a sermon about seeking the truth and being prepared for the answer you might receive. He spoke in a clear baritone, sprinkling his speech with precise references to Bible scriptures. Ask, and it shall be open to you, he said. But to this I'll add, you better know what you're asking for and be ready for the answer. Don't go knocking on God's door till you got your act together. Can I get a amen friends? A chorus of amen's erupted from the congregation. When the service concluded, probably with one of those punk ass offerings where they make everybody stand up and walk to the front of the fucking off to the front of the the, 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 the altar to put their money in the three fucking offering plates that three fucking ushers are holding so then people could see if you weren't rich enough to have money to put into the offering plate so you had to lie and say you sent your tithes in before. When the service concluded, exit doors along the sides of the building opened. People filed out into the steaming morning, buzzing with conversation. David had seen the pastor stride into the lobby, so that was where he was headed. On his way, many people approached him to ask if he was indeed the son of Richard Hunter, and he confirmed that he was. Boy, you was spitting image of your daddy, was the most common response. Then they offered their condolences. David thanked them and moved on. He found Reverend Brown in the lobby, greeting church members with handshakes and hugs. David awaited his turn, and when he finally came face to face with the pastor, he was startled when the man pulled him into an embrace. I pray that you will come to the service, David, he whispered. I have to speak to you. Okay, David wheezed, his chest constricted by the Reverend's bear hug. Reverend Brown relinquished his hold. He put his meaty hands on David's shoulders and sized them up, grinning. I know you've heard this many times, son, but you look exactly like your father did as a young man. David smiled. Yes, I've heard it before. The pastor's smile faded. I want to speak with you in my office. It's at the end of the hallway. Please wait in there, and I'll be with you in a few minutes. I have to finish greeting the church family. What's this all about, David wondered, walking away. At the end of the hall, a sign beside a door read, Reverend Brown. It was a small but comfortable office, with a large oak desk, a leather chair, and two padded chairs flanking the desk. Photographs hung on the walls. The pastor had two framed degrees, one from Hampton University, the other from Alcorn State. An attractive family photo, the pastor, his wife, and two teenage boys stood on the desk. A window gave a view of the meadow behind the church. Reverend Brown entered the office five minutes later. He settled into his chair and removed his glasses. He massaged the bridge of his nose. That was a powerful sermon you preached this morning, David said. Thank you, Reverend Brown said. I also found it appropriate that you happened to be in attendance the morning I delivered that particular sermon. It proves the hand of God in our lives. I'm afraid I don't follow you, David said. Reverend Brown tapped the desk with his thick index finger. Seeking truth, son. You come to Mason's Corner because you're seeking the truth about your father. Is that right? How did you know? I knew your father well, probably better than anyone in this town. He told me that he hadn't done right by you. But when he passed on, he left you everything. Reverend Brown spread his hands to emphasize his point. Yes, he told me that he was going to bequeath his fortune to you. It was bound to make you curious and eager to learn more about Richard. David was stunned at the pastor's insight. I'll interpret your silence as confirmation that I'm correct, Reverend Brown said. David leaned forward. What can you tell me about my dad? Reverend Brown steepled his hands. There is no simple way to summarize the character of a man like Richard Hunter. He was a complex individual, driven by motivations that I think he didn't often understand himself. Just as one cannot easily reach a conclusion about what kind of man he was... Likewise, the Richard distrusts easy, obvious answers. Like what? Break it down for me if you don't mind. The pastor rotated slowly in his chair. Richard loved to debate theology with me. He was a Christian and had been all of his life. But towards the end, I think he grew dissatisfied with the answers that the Bible supplies about achieving everlasting life, divine mercy, and a place in heaven. Weighty subjects of that nature. Richard began to study other religions. Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, all the other isms you could think of. He was seeking answers to questions that had puzzled him for his entire adult life. I did notice a lot of books about religion in his library. Of course. He didn't stop with the books either. He began to hold discussions with a young woman named Pearl. Pearl. She lives on the outskirts of town, and a lot of folks believe she's psychic. Your father was relentless in his search and will leave no stone unturned. Pearl. David made a mental note to follow up on her later. Still, I don't get it. What was he so obsessed about? The pastor tapped his lip with a pencil. Have you read your father's work? I've read all of his books. Many of them twice. What common theme runs through them? Consider it carefully. David leaned back in the chair. The plight of the black man in America? Probe deeper. I guess he... He seemed kind of obsessed with death. Close. Very close. But what exactly about death interested him? Think about one of his last books, Prodigal Son. Okay. The story was about a man who faked his death. The pastor smiled, but it was a rueful expression. There you go. Shock ejected David out of his chair. Are you serious? You think my dad faked his death? I'm convinced that he did, David. But David couldn't finish the sentence. He collapsed into the chair. He felt dizzy. Reverend Brown turned reached into a mini-refrigerator beside the desk and withdrew a bottle of water. He handed it to David. David thanked him and took deep gulps of the water. His nausea faded. Reverend Brown raised his index finger. Please understand now, I wasn't an accomplice in Richard's plot. He shared nothing with me about his plan to disappear. I'd never go to the police or anyone else to force my opinion as it's just based on my knowledge of his character and recollections of our discussions. I'm only sharing this with you because you're his son, and you wanted the truth. I've given you the truth as I see it. David shook his head. I don't want to believe it, but I've wondered. You just validated what I've suspected all along. Reverend Brown came around the desk and put his hand on David's shoulder. I'm sorry, but remember that when you ask a question, you have to be prepared for the answer. ''So where is he?'' David said. ''If he isn't dead, where did he go?'' The pastor clasped his hands, sighed. ''I don't know.'' ''I'll tell you, I've racked my brains thinking where Richard might have gone.'' ''What he's doing?'' ''He's traveled the world, you know, and is comfortable in a wide range of cultures. He could be anywhere.'' ''Why?'' David said. ''Why fake his death?'' Think about it. If the world believed you were dead, you would, in a sense, get a picture of how life on earth would be if you had genuinely passed on. Consider all the articles that have been written about Richard since his supposed death. Think about all the tributes and outpourings of love, compassion, and admiration by friends and foes alike. I imagine that Richard is soaking all of it up, reveling in his secret knowledge, savoring his victory. He has, in effect, cheated death from a worldly perspective. Too much. David dragged his hand down his sweaty face. This is too much for me. I came all the way here from Atlanta and moved into his house for nothing. I'm not going to learn anything about him. He's gone to who knows where, and that's it. Reverend Brown returned to his chair. I disagree. Coming to Mason's Corner was the best step you could have possibly taken. I'm convinced that, in his home, you'll find clues that'll tell you what happened to him. Clues, David said. Like what? I don't know. Books, papers, correspondence, photographs, artwork. You could search through his belongings and piece together the puzzle. To a large degree, a man's thoughts can be divined from his surroundings. I don't think it'll be easy, but with the grace of God, you'll discover the complete truth. I'd be lying if I said that I was ready for this, David said. But thank you for being honest with me. It means more than you can know. Please keep what I've told you in the strictest confidence. If you have to share my theory with a friend, don't let them know who gave you the idea. It wouldn't look good for the pastor of the largest church in town to be responsible for spreading a controversial rumor like this. Understood. David was wrung out ready to go home and crash on the bed. Reverend Brown stood, signaling that their conversation was over. He folded David into another hug. May God bless you, David. I'm praying for you, and your father. Still numb with shock following his conversation with Reverend Brown, David returned to the house. When he walked through the front door, he saw the place as though with a new set of eyes. I'm convinced that, In his home, you'll find clues that will tell you what's happened to him. His discussion with the pastor felt as if it had all been part of a dream, a dream he wanted to forget. In the living room, he settled into the sofa. King trotted towards him and slapped his paws on David's lap, wanting to be petted. Not now, King, he said. Go lie down. King looked at him pitifully, then lay on the floor near David's feet. David stared at the ceiling. The fan rotated slowly. So my father might be alive. Might be, remember. Reverend Brown could be wrong and has no proof to support his theory. But what should I do next? How about traveling? With the fortune his father had given him, he could travel the globe searching for his dad. But where would he go? He didn't have the vaguest idea. As the pastor had advised... The search would have to begin in this house. A recent black-and-white photograph of his father stood on the coffee table. His father leaned against the vine-colored column of a large antebellum-style house. He wore a gray sports coat and a white shirt. His arms were folded across his chest, and his famous cigar jutted from his fingers. David thought that his dad's confident, the world is my oyster smile held a hint of mystery. He looked into his father's piercing eyes, as though he could communicate telepathically with him, wherever he was in the world. Where are you, Dad? Why have you done this? He traced his finger across the picture frame. Maybe he shouldn't try to find his father. Maybe his father didn't want to be found by anyone, including his son. His father, who had been photographed publicly for decades, would have needed to alter his appearance in order to live his new life in anonymity. What if he acted like a different man, too? Concentrating on the photo, David felt a realization stirring. He walked through the house, gripping the picture in his hands. He climbed the stairs to the second floor. He walked into the office and stopped beside the window. He raised the blinds. In the distance, Jubilee loomed, as ominous as ever. David studied the photograph, looked out the window again. It looked like his dad had taken the photo in front of the mason house. For Sunday dinner, Nia prepared a fresh salad, lasagna, garlic bread, and for dessert, peach cobbler. Naya wondered about how her mother would receive David. When she returned home after her meeting with a client in Memphis, Mama talked about how, at church, David had stood when visitors had been asked to rise. You could see that the boy was eating up the attention, glorifying in it, Mama said, just like his father. She was determined to find fault in David, and Naya was beginning to think that her mother's dislike for David had nothing to do with David, and everything to do with the troubled relationship her mother must have had with David's father. David arrived at 3 o'clock. He was casually dressed in tan slacks and a white button-down shirt. He looked handsome. He presented her with a bouquet of fresh tulips and lilies. This is for the ladies of the house. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet of you. Come in. I'll introduce you to my mother. She took him by the hand. Mamma sat in the recliner, a crossword puzzle on her lap. She peered over the edges of her glasses. Mamma, I'd like you to meet David. David stepped forward to shake her mother's hand. Hmm. Mama said, allowing her hand to be held briefly. I saw you at church this morning. Did you? I enjoyed the service. Were you paying attention? Oh, Lord, Naya thought. Here we go. I was. David smiled at Frozen. Mama twisted her lips. I hope so, because I sure was. I have a few things I want to learn the truth about. Know what I mean? Uh, sure. David's gaze shifted around the room. Naya broke in. Hey, dinner's ready. Let's eat. Dinner was equally strained. David tried valiantly to engage her mother in conversation, asking about their family, sharing details about his own family and background, commenting on things he had seen and people he had met in town, and touching on current events. But Mama would not be charmed. She gave him curt responses and narrow, distrustful looks. Naya was embarrassed. She rarely brought men home to meet her mother, but her mother had never behaved like this. When Naya began to serve the peach cobbler for dessert, Mama got up. Alright, being civil has worn me out, Mama said. Naya, I'm going to take a nap. Make sure you clean up what you messed up. David, take care of yourself. Stunned, holding a spatula in her hand, Naya watched Mama leave. Well, David said, looks like I blew it. I'm so sorry, David. Mama doesn't usually act like that. I don't get it. What did I do wrong? Nothing. You were a sweetheart, she said. I don't think the way Mama acted has anything to do with you. She hasn't told me so, but I think she's bitter about something related to your dad. That explains it, I guess. Doesn't help me much, though. I can't change my paternity. Don't worry, she'll get over it. Now I put down the spatula. I need to get out of this house for a while. Want to take a walk? We can have the peach cobbler later. Outdoors, they strolled along the sidewalk, hand in hand, following the same path they had taken last night. It was a warm, gorgeous summer afternoon. The earth was vibrant, bursting with life and possibilities. They walked into the park where they had settled on a bench the night before. They followed a hiking trail that curved through the woods. The cool shade was a welcome respite from the heat. I spoke to Reverend Brown this morning, David said. Did he tell you anything interesting about your father? The way David looked at her made her stop in her tracks. Then he smiled, as if to reassure her, but it was a strained expression. He did, David said. He seemed about to say something else, then appeared to change his mind. What's wrong? It's nothing, he said. He wasn't being open with her. She could tell that he was deeply worried about something, but she wouldn't push him. She let him reveal his thoughts at his own pace. Have you ever heard of a woman in town named Pearl? David said. She's supposed to be psychic, from what I hear. Has Pearl called you? Huh? No. Good, Naya said. I've heard of Pearl. I've talked to her. She called me. When? Why? She called me a couple years ago, she said. I was living in Houston at the time, but I was home for the holidays. She called me and warned me to be careful dealing with my colleagues. This time, it was David who stopped walking. Are you for real? Oh, yeah. She was right, you know. Morgan, the stalker, proves it. My problem was that he was the last one I would have worried about. That's amazing. So this pearl is a real deal then. Let me put it like this. If she were to call me, I would listen to her. I think lots of people in town would agree. Some folks think she's a phony, but that's probably because she's never called them. The trail came to a short wooden bridge that spanned across a creek. They stopped near the middle of the bridge and leaned against the sturdy railing. David peered into the brownish water below. That's how Pearl does her thing then? By calling people? Sometimes. She runs a palm reading and tarot card business out of her house too, so people usually visit her. She doesn't come into town very often. She looked at him. Why all these questions about Pearl? I think my dad talked to her, so I wanted to know more about her. I might talk to her about him. This stuff about your father, Naya said. It's really bothering you, isn't it? He did not respond immediately. He draped his arm across her shoulder, brought her closer, and kissed her on the lips. She massaged his broad back with the palm of her hand. He was such a lean, firm man. She loved the feel of him. She felt safe at his side, protected against the world. You're right. It's bothering me, Naya, he finally said. She detected that his worries went deeper than she could possibly understand, and that there was much about his father he had not told her. She wanted him to tell her everything, if it would help to lighten his burden, but she would not pressure him. In time, he would open up to her. She had the feeling that they would get to share a lot of time together, whether Mama liked it or not. Pearl was afraid. She had burst out of sleep last night, snatched out of a slumber by a threat that she sensed but could not see, and she had been unable to find peach since. She lived in a small clapboard house located on the bluffs at the edge of town, just her and her three cats, and though the home was modest, a vast grassy field lay adjacent to her property. Late in the golden afternoon, she walked barefoot through the meadow, her short arms spread, her delicate fingers streaming through the soft weeds and wildflowers. She was a pixie of a woman, five feet tall, and she weighed only a 100 pounds. She was 24 years old. At times like this, when powerful feelings overcame her, she wished for a bigger body to better contain all of the energy. She wished she was older and wiser, too. Great evil stirred in Dark Corner, A malevolent force that had been asleep for years was about to awaken. Life in the town would never be the same. She liked to stroll through the field, because it usually relaxed her. She had been born with the gift of clairvoyance. Her mother had possessed the gift too, as had her grandmother. Indeed, the talent spanned several generations. Her elders had taught her that just as it was important to use your gift for the benefit of others, So was it important to learn how to contain your power, to keep it from overwhelming you and driving you mad. She had developed myriad ways to cope. Meditation, prayers, soothing herbal teas, gardening, and long walks outdoors. A breeze rustled the grass. Sunlight bathed her body. Closing her eyes, she stretched her arms above her and tilted her face to the sky, luxuriating in the refreshing warmth. Suddenly, the earth began to quake. Her eyes snapped open. The ground beneath her shook, flowers swaying. A vision, she thought. It's only a vision. There are no earthquakes here. Nevertheless, she stepped backwards. About ten feet in front of her, a chasm exploded open. Bits of dirt and rock flew out of the gash, as if a subterranean creature were down there spitting out debris. Then, it fell silent. Although dread clutched her heart, she did not run. Running would not solve anything. The haunting images would only follow her. This vision was intended to teach her something. But what? Slowly she walked forward. It was a pit, drawn in almost a perfect circle, perhaps five feet in diameter. Perfect darkness yawned in the hole, and waves of chilly air rolled out of its depths. Strange, she thought, hugging herself against the coldness. What did this mean? She heard movement below. Something dark and enormous surged to the surface with a rumbling sound that steadily grew louder. Involuntarily, she backpedaled. A geyser of blood erupted out of the pit. Blood sprayed into the air like lava from a monstrous volcano. She screamed. She dashed back towards her house. As she ran, blood rained to the earth, coating her skin and drenching the meadow in crimson. She slammed into the house. She grabbed a towel off the kitchen counter and frantically scrubbed her skin. But her skin was dry. There was not a drop of blood on her. Dear God, she whispered. She exhaled deeply. Warily, she pulled away the curtain above the window and looked outside. The field was quiet and green. No geyser of gore. Still shaking, she shooed one of the cats off the counter and set about brewing a pot of tea to soothe her tangled nerves. While water heated in the tea kettle, she slumped at the small dinette table. She cradled her head in her hands. It was the most lucid and disturbing vision she had ever received. It left little need for interpretation. Violence and bloodshed were imminent. Could anyone stop it? Visions such as these were warnings, and she never received warnings without eventually discovering a way to prevent harmful incidents from occurring. She had to learn how the evil could be stopped. She could not stop it herself. She was only a guide. She needed to find the special persons who could combat this evil and offer them direction. She prayed that she found them, before it was too late. Early in the evening, David left Naya's house. But he did not go home. He drove to Jubilee. He went to the Mason home in the hope that he would find some evidence about what had really happened to his dad. His father had taken a photograph at the house. And that could be a clue. Or it could be coincidence. Nevertheless, if there was a connection between his dad and Jubilee, he could not imagine what it might be. David had to find out. The Pathfinder labored up the steep, bumpy road that climbed towards the estate. Trees crowded the way, casting ink-black shadows. Cold sweat coated David's palms. Jubilee had given him a chill from the moment he had seen it, and the stories he heard only added to the mansion's fearsome aura. He could hardly believe that he was visiting this place. He was either dedicated to finding the truth or a little crazy. He wished that he had brought King with him, but it was too late to go back home to get his dog. At the crest of the hill, the lane curved to the left. The gate to the property was around the bend, on the right. He did not park in front of the gate. He parked along the dusty shoulder of the road, under the boughs of an elm tree. He sat there for a minute or two, drawing breaths to compose himself. Okay, man, he mumbled to himself. You're here. Now get out and do it. Climbing out of the truck was like moving through cold water. Viewed at close range, the estate was more forbidding than ever. Tall, gnarled trees populated the immense yard. Dense shadows gathered beneath their branches. A lonely dirt path led to the house. Tentacles of kudzu coiled around the mansion's thick columns. The front windows, reflecting the orange-crimson rays of the setting sun, were arranged in such a way as to resemble a face. A silver Lexus SUV was parked beside the house. Who in their right mind would live in this place, David thought. He approached the gate. He wished he had brought with him the photograph of his father, but he thought he could pick the spot on the veranda where his father had posed for the picture. Naya's tale about her terrifying childhood adventure replayed through his mind. Had his father seen ghosts too? He touched the gate. The iron bars were cold. May I help you? David spun at the sound of the voice behind him. A tall, slender black man, clad in black clothes, wearing aviator shades and a black hat, stood on the side of the road. He cocked his head questioningly, long arms clasped behind his back. David had not heard him approach. He had been so absorbed in the house that he had temporarily forgotten the outside world. But where had the guy come from? Had the man been taking a walk? That had to be the answer. David cleared his throat. throat) Do you live here? I believe I put forward the first question, the man said casually. David caught an unplaceable accent. Do you have business at this residence? I was I was only looking around, David said. Is this your place? You are persistent, the man smiled briefly. David got a glimpse of his perfect white teeth. It's my home, for the time. Are you from the town? I moved here a few days ago. I see, and doubtless, you've heard stories of haunted jubilee. Decide that you will muster your nerve and lay your eyes upon the house? Determine whether you sensed any negative vibrations? Something like that, I guess. David edged away from the fence. There was something unusual about this guy, but he could not determine exactly what it was. The man whisked past David and pushed open the gate. David noticed that he wore black leather gloves, too. Weird. It was much too warm outdoors to wear gloves. The man turned. You impress me as an intelligent, rational young man. I'd advise you to pay no mind to superstitions and tall tales. The truth is never so... entertaining. His lips curved into a smile. Then he whirled around and strode across the path. In seconds, the man had vanished inside the mansion. He moved with fluid, sinuous speed like a snake. Now what was that all about, David thought. It hit him what seemed so unusual about the guy. Although, from what little David had seen of his face, the guy appeared to be young. Perhaps in his thirties, he had the manner of an old, wise man. Strange. But it figured, it would take an unusual person to call this dreadful house a home. Still, superficial explanations didn't satisfy David. Why had the man, who was clearly a foreigner, moved into the mason place? Did it have anything to do with his dad? David looked at the house. Jubilee seemed like a huge ancient tomb, full of secrets. Something mysterious was going on in there. David felt it just like he had felt the cool breeze on his face. He was grasping at straws, but until he learned otherwise, he would assume that everything was connected somehow. A puzzle had been presented to him. Pieces scattered randomly. He would not rest until he had put it together. Deep in thought, he got into his truck. Standing near the window, Kyle watched the inquisitive young man depart. Ordinarily, Kyle would have dispatched Mamu to handle visitors. Since last night, however, Kyle had been restless, and he was feeling protective as well. He did not dare to allow anyone to disrupt what he had begun. He had used his ability to travel with extreme speed to appear behind the man. The man, if he had glimpsed Kyle coming across the yard at all, would have only seen a flicker of a shadow. Kyle had leapt over the fence as if it was no taller than a footstool. Although the human claimed to be innocently looking around, Kyle detected a definite purpose to his visit. The man had almost certainly lied to him. He wondered if the two laborers who had worked for him yesterday had begun telling others what they had seen. If so, that would be an unpleasant development. He did not relish the prospect of nosy town folks poking around the property, seeking a mass grave or some such thing. Upon arriving in Mason's Corner, Kyle had assumed that he would have several weeks to locate his father, awaken him, and aid his adjustment to contemporary life. He had been mistaken. The people in town would begin to meddle. The visit by the young man was only the beginning. Mother had trained him how to identify patterns of human behavior. He did not have much time remaining to work in relative peace. Perhaps a week. Suddenly not much longer. He walked to the basement. White candles were arranged around the perimeter of the chamber. They cast warm golden light. Kyle approached the bed. His father continued to sleep, silently. The undulation of his chest was barely perceptible. Since they had recovered him, he had not awakened once. Kyle and Mamou had stripped the ragged clothes off his father's body, bathed them with soft sponges, and dressed them in bedclothes of fine silk. He was like a wooden dummy in their hands, heavy and limp. His muscles appeared to have atrophied and his ebony skin had an unhealthy, washed-out look. Mamu had inserted an IV in a vein on the back of Diallo's hand. The IV pumped a special mixture of blood and nutrients into his bloodstream. The fluid would help to rebuild his muscles, revitalize his skin, and strengthen his heart. Kyle laid his hand against Diallo's broad forehead. His skin was warm, an encouraging sign. When they discovered him, His flesh had been cool. Gazing upon his father was like looking into a pool of still water. They were so obviously father and son. He slid his fingers along the firm jawbone, across the proud chin, full lips, and strong brow. It was the countenance of a warrior. Kyle touched his own face. He traced his features, marveling at the similarities between his face and his father's. To be able to savor this connection with his father was well worth 168 years of waiting and whatever he faced hereafter. He put his hand in his father's, squeezed slightly. He hungered to see his father open his eyes, but there was no known method of awakening a vampire who had succumbed to the depths of a deep sleep. Mother claimed that she did not know how it could be done either. The vampire alone would have to choose to awaken. The longest recorded deep sleep in history was one hundred eleven years achieved by a vampire in brazil. If Diallo awakened, he would have surpassed the record by almost sixty years. It was believed that a sleeping vampire maintained a low degree of sensory awareness, no matter how profound the slumber. Kyle was counting on the truth of the belief. He had been visiting his father each hour and speaking to him in a whisper holding his father's hand, he leaned closer. "Please hear me, my father," Kyle said. "I'm your son. You are safe. Awaken. Open your eyes and look upon me." Kyle repeated the words again and again in a soft, fervent chant. He suddenly noticed a change. His father's eyes, rotating back and forth underneath his leathery eyelids. Diala was dreaming. Diallo dreamed of a world drenched in blood. The sun was a blood blister. The sky was a raw membrane. The mountains on the horizon were giant hunks of bleeding flesh. The trees had been dipped in gore, and the grass did not crunch underfoot. It oozed, as though he tread across a vast carpet woven from threads of dripping skin. He had created this place. He was at peace at long last. All of the men who had once overrun the land had perished at his hands and he had fashioned this world from their steaming corpses. He walked through a gleaming red meadow, the sun warm on his dark skin. Ahead, there was a huge lake of bright, cool blood. It lapped at the sandy red banks. He strolled to the shore, bent, and cut blood in his large hands. He drank deeply. It was so sweet, so invigorating. He was about to turn, to pluck a juicy, blood-filled fruit from a nearby tree when he saw something shimmering on the lake's surface. There were visions of his prior life, before he had conquered the world. The images had a clarity reminiscent of how his face had once looked when regarded in a pool of silver water. He watched the memories, as a spectator views a sport. He was a young man, the village prince, highly esteemed by his peers and family. Always, he had been bigger and stronger than others, and more cunning, too. For his natural gifts, he had been richly rewarded. He took several wives but loved none of them, enjoying only the fill of their bodies and their subservience to his will. He grew into a feared warrior. Rival villages fell. One of the villages, to ward off an attack and ensure peace, offered him their loveliest woman as a wife. Mariama Oh, Mariama! He fell in love with her, cherished her as he had never cherished a woman before. Their souls bonded, and they became as one. She smoothed the edges of his hard heart and calmed his desire to dominate. Unknowingly, by coaxing him to become a gentleman, she had caused the erosion of his skills in battle too. An upstart village attacked him, and both he and Mariama were captured. They were sold to the pale men, the European slave traders. He and Mariama were separated, savagely, as if they were only cattle. He was shattered. He vowed that one day he would see her again, no matter how long it took to find her. He survived an overseas voyage on a stinking, rat-infested ship, packed so tightly with other slaves that even another's man's waist would seep down his legs and back. As he lay in the cramped space, his body sore and filthy, his stomach aching with hunger, he made another vow. He would not live his life as anyone's slave, and they would not kill him either. He would kill them first. It was not his destiny to serve as a slave. It was his destiny to be served by slaves. When the ship arrived at its port, he was sold to a wealthy planter in the state of Virginia. It was a strange new world. No one knew who he was. No one knew his greatness, his prowess in battle. They did not fear him as they should. They treated him as if he was a common mule. He did not see Mariama at his new home. He submitted to the harsh life of a slave, biding his time. Many times, his rage overwhelmed him, and he lashed against the overseers. Always, they beat him with merciless glee. Sometimes... His fellow slaves spoke in hushed tones about escaping. Usually, when they tried, they were captured and brought back to the plantation, or they were killed. He understood that there would be a better way for him. He was a great man, with a destiny to fulfill. Running fearfully through the night was not his path. Freedom came once he finally killed. He saw an overseer whipping a young female slave. He seized the man and broke him over his knee like a plank of wood. The act demanded that he be put to death immediately, but he was saved by the destiny for which he awaited, Leisha. The mysterious black female, feared even by the white men, arrived on the plantation and intervened to purchase him at a high price. She took him away. She said that she had been watching him. She offered him a life free from death. A life of timeless power. The life of a vampire. He accepted without hesitation, recognizing that the power of which he spoke was his destiny. He became Leisha's companion. They moved to a colorful, vibrant city in New Orleans. There, they lived in a mansion, with servants eager to fulfill their every whim. At night, they left the confines of the estate to satisfy their bloodthirst on the humans. On one of their hunts, he found Mariyama. He had known that he would find her again. She was as beautiful as he had remembered, in spite of the hardships she had endured since their separation. She was a slave for a rich white man. He had invaded the house to feed on the inhabitants and found her asleep. Stunned, he promised to take her away from the place so she could live with him. Although Leisha had saved him, he would have freely left Leisha to be with Mariyama again. But Mariyama barely recognized him. She thought he was a demon. As he tried to convince her that he was indeed her husband, men broke inside, bearing rifles. They fired. He avoided the gunfire. Mariama did not. Believing that she was dead and lost to him forever, he fled, weeping, to Leisha. She comforted him, though he wept for a woman. She understood that he loved Mariama more than he could ever love her. She did not seem to care. She only wanted his companionship. But he wanted more. He wanted to destroy these men who had caused such pain and torment. He wanted to destroy those who submissively accepted pain. He wanted to wipe all of them clean from the earth. He wanted to drench the world in their blood. He did not join Leash on the next night's hunt. He left her. He began to build his army, to help him fulfill his mission, his true destiny. With a horde of vampire warriors behind him, he went on a bloody rampage across the land. Plantations fell, much like the rival villagers had in his days as a man. He squashed them under his heels and washed himself in their blood. And incredibly, he found Mariama again. She walked with a limp from the gunshot wound. But she was no less beautiful to him. She had been placed on another plantation and worked inside the master's house. She recognized him with the same glimmer of fear in her eyes. She said that he was not a man. He said she was correct. He was better than a man, and he was going to make her better than a woman, too. He destroyed the plantation and took her with him. He planned to make her a vampire once he had the opportunity to complete the secret rituals Alicia had taught him. But the very next day, tragedy struck. This time, Mariama did not survive. Roaring, Diallo punched the lake's shimmering red surface. The blood splashed, and the haunting memories rippled away. He ran away from the banks into the crimson forest. He ran and ran. Then... The woods thinned. He ventured out of the shadows and into a gleaming red meadow. He looked up. The sun was a blood blister. The sky was a raw membrane. The mountains on the horizon were giant hunks of bleeding flesh. The trees had been dipped in gore, and the grass did not crunch underfoot. It oozed, as though he tread across a vast carpet woven from threads of dripping skin. He had created this place. 916-633-1537 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Pod Chaser, copy it. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Copy it. Leave a review on Good Pods. Um Donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. Uh, donate to the show at um buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. And donate to the show at Good Pods in our tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace.